From time to time, it's really good for all of us to get away on a trip, wouldn't you agree? And whether we're flying somewhere and we're um, in the air or whether we're on the road, it also always feels good to come home. And that kind of describes where we've been over the last several months because we have been on a trip with the first century church in Rome and we've been on the same journey they, have, they were on to understand the sovereignty of God and the depths of his grace. And now as we headed into chapter 12 this week and we leave behind those first 11 chapters, it's kind of the same feeling as that less last leg of our journey. Um, when we're coming home from a trip, we're getting off the interstate, we may still have several more miles to go, but at least we know we're headed toward the finish line of getting back in our house, back in our own bed, and being comfortable with there again. So I want us to remember, first of all, this morning, um, the three divisions that we have talked about regularly through this book. And Lisa reminded them, reminded us of those divisions again in January when she did the review for us. And chapters one through five, um, we um, described as being the chapters that answered the question, what is grace? And we looked at the depth of our sinful nature and how desperate we were for a savior and to be rescued and then in 6 through 11 we applied what we learned which was all about the grace of god as we believed and the sacrifice that was offered for us through jesus christ and the theme of chapter 6 through 11 was how his grace changed me at the core of my faith now as we go into 12 through 16 the question it that we're answering is how does grace practically and tangibly shape the way I live? So think of chapters 12 to 16 that we will cover in the next several weeks as those last few miles, those last turns on the road until we're home. We've laid a lot of groundwork, but now we're kind of down to the nitty gritty of how does this play out in my daily life? We're entering the section that describes the new life of believers. How we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as children of God, live the way God desires us to, rather than living as children of the world. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about three things, three big points out of this chapter. The first two that we're going to talk about are living sacrifices and renewed minds. And the only thing, the only two verses we're going to cover as we cover these two really big ideas are the first two verses. And I don't want you to worry that we're not going to get to the rest of the chapter because we are, but we're going to sit with these first two verses for a little while because they are highly significant and they tell us um, such an important concept that we need to have a full and complete understanding of before we can put into action what is in all the rest of the verses of this chapter. So let's read together, for starters, um, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. I'm reading from the NLT right now. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. 
Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. When Paul starts this chapter in the NLT, he says, and so. In most other translations, the word right there is therefore. And I used to have a college professor who used to always say, whenever you saw the word therefore in scripture, you needed to ask what it was there for. So we're going to answer that question right now. It is present at the start of this sentence because what Paul is saying is based on everything I have taught you up to this point, based on these first 11 chapters, now here's what God calls you to do. He calls you to present yourself as a living sacrifice. So in other words, everything that we've learned to this point is what gives us the motivation and the desire to offer our whole bodies to God as living sacrifices. So when you think back about learning about the mercies of God, about your desperate need to be redeemed, about how the Son of God came as the ultimate sacrifice for us to deliver us, and about the grace of God that makes us righteous. What Paul is saying is, now that you know all of that, here's what you need to do. You need to present yourself as a living sacrifice. This imagery is, of course, drawn from the Old Testament and the practice of animal sacrifices. And when lambs were given in the temple to the priests by one who came in to make that sacrifice, something really important happened. When that lamb was presented, it became the entire, the entire lamb became the property of God. The same way Paul is saying to us right here, when you present yourself as a living sacrifice, the picture that he knows the Jews especially understand, but the Greeks would have well, would have as well. The picture is you are presenting your whole body, everything about you, your mind, your soul, your physical body, all of this you are giving over entirely to God. So that includes our time, our money, our energy, our passion, our interests, our thoughts, everything about us. Now, I think that it is probably easier for us to be comfortable with someone else's sacrifice than with our own. Because the word sacrifice is not the most pleasant of words to us. It implies that I have to give something up and within that word, I think we most often think of, I have to give up something that is important to me. So it's very easy usually for us to think about the sacrifice of another person. It's more difficult for us to think about personal sacrifice. It's easier for us to receive something because of another person's sacrifice than it is for us to always be willing to do it for others. There are some very obvious illustrations of large personal sacrifice that um, we see around us. Think of the ministry of Billy Graham and all that he gave up 
to travel the world and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. Think of his son Franklin and how he is similarly so often around the world with Samaritan's Purse serving different groups of people. Our pastors are living sacrifices to us. And we learn from those examples. We, those examples are really big ones. Um, but there are some that come down to a more personal level. I watched with interest this week a couple of people interviewed who were the um, directors of orphanages in Ukraine. And they had given their lives over to taking care of the children in that country, in that culture, who have no one else to speak for them and to love and care for them. I have an illustration from my own personal life of a mother who gave up a tremendous amount for me um, as I was growing up to be able to attend a Christian college. And while I was in the middle of that, I have to tell you, I didn't fully understand what was going on. But as I got older and looked back on the limited resources of our family at that point in time and the full-time work that she carried off, I began to realize all that she had given in order for me to have that opportunity. She was, in reality, a living sacrifice on the altar of God in service to me as her daughter. But when we give our whole persons to God in this way, and remember, this is not partial, this is our whole person, Paul tells us to do it in a holy and acceptable way. If we look back for, for a moment <coughs> to Romans 6, 13, excuse me. <coughs> Paul wrote there, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. So even back five or six chapters ago, Paul was beginning to present this thought that as believers, we give ourselves completely to God. He pointed out in the book of Philippians a time when the people in the church at Philippi had sacrificed greatly to send him supplies and gifts and money that he needed while he was imprisoned in Rome. And he talks in Philippians 4.18 about the fact that after they did that, he had all he needed and more, and that what they had done was a sweet-smelling sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God. The writer of Hebrews carries out this same theme as we go through the New Testament by writing, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. So whether you are using your money that you've worked hard to earn to give to others, whether you're using your hands in service, donating your time and your energy, cautiously using the words that you speak to encourage others, you are in fact 
offering a sacrifice of praise to God. <clears throat> now, what it says at the end of verse 1 right here is it says, Paul tells us, you do this, you give yourself as this living sacrifice, and here's why, because this is truly the way to worship God. There is an important progression right here in this verse. When we are willing to give our complete selves to God, we are worshiping him in the purest form. And when we are worshiping him first, we are praising, giving him the honor he deserves. We are reminded of who he is relative to who we are. And we are much more prepared to sacrifice. We are ready to learn how to be transformed. We're ready to let the Spirit lead our lives because we have worshipped God for who he truly is. And we're ready to go on to what is in verse 2 about having our minds converted away from worldly thinking to thinking that reflects our place as children of God. One of my favorite quotations is from D.L. Moody, who was the founder of Moody Church and Moody Bible Institute and was an evangelist in the 19th century. And what he said about this passage in Romans was this, that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Well, we all crawl off the altar from time to time. But the point that Paul is making at the end of verse 1 is that when you are truly worshiping God, when your heart is fully given over to him, it's much harder for you to crawl off the altar. So let's look at verse 2 now <clears throat> in some detail for a moment. Verse 2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's think for a minute about the renewal of our minds. Here is the challenge for us. Our sinful nature, along with everything that surrounds us in the world, is more than happy to dictate to us what should fill our minds. The phrase that we often see online, in social media, on websites, wherever, of what's trending, the truth is that the trends that permeate our culture are more than happy to conform our minds and tell us what to do. But what Paul is saying here is that in contrast to that, the renewed mind focuses on what God in his mercy has done for us. It focuses on the fact that Christ has brought a new age and given us a way out of the old patterns of the world. We are called to distinguish, to test and discern what is true and good and honorable based on the word and character of God. Now, the Greek word that is used here for conform is the word that references a references an idea that we've dealt with before in the book of Romans. It's this idea of being shaped like a lump of clay is shaped by a potter. And what is meant in verse 2 right here is that if you will allow the world to do it, it will shape your mind and turn you into the product that it desires. 
But immediately following that, the word for transform the word for transformation and having your mind transformed is the word metamorpho in the Greek, which is where we get our term metamorphosis. And when we think of metamorphosis, where does our mind go? We think to the transformation of a caterpillar who weaves his cocoon around him and then emerges as a beautiful butterfly. A complete and fundamental transformation is taking place. The same thing happens for us as believers in three important steps. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved through faith by grace, which gives us peace with God through Jesus. That's the first one. The second one is we learn that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our eternal destiny is secure. We are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And then thirdly, we stand at this pivotal point where we are confronted with this incredible call from God to present ourselves, our whole person, as a living sacrifice, no longer conformed to the way of the world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. Chuck Swindoll refers to this as a cooperative command, meaning that we have to approach this in obedience and willingness and in full cooperation, choosing to separate from a secular worldview <clears throat> and a secular lifestyle and fully cooperate with the plan of God. But the great news is that in so doing, God does not leave us alone in that. He doesn't say, okay, well, now you've made that choice, so it's all up to you. Instead, what does he do? He enters into the process with us. By his mercies, he fills us with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses our experiences, our trials, the word of God, the examples that we see in other believers to renovate us from the inside out. And so gradually what happens? We begin to think like God, desire what God desires, love as he loves. And that becomes reality as we understand what Paul says at the end of verse 2, we understand the will of God. Now, I've entitled all the rest of the verses in this chapter, so 3 through 21, as authentic actions. And here's the reason that I did that. Because when we present ourselves as living sacrifices and we cooperatively give in to God's will for us to have our lives and our minds transformed, everything else that Paul describes in this chapter follows very logically as part of our lives. So this is now the third step in this process. And the first thing that he talks about is in verses 3 through 8, where he talks about how we are part of a larger body. Let's read that together. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. 
Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Now, what we need to grasp right here is that we are all individual members of a single family. And what matters in this family, first of all, is how we view ourselves. And Paul says, don't think you're all that in a bag of chips. Don't think too highly of yourself, but see yourself realistically. You know, Paul was a man, as we've talked about before, who had a lot of reasons to think highly of himself. He had a tremendous education. He had grown up um, in a family where he had learned all of the, the Jewish customs and traditions, and he also had citizenship of Rome. All of his training and experiences allowed him, in the human sense, to look down on others. But it's as though Paul is pulling us aside right here, and he's saying, let me give you some advice. As one who fell into this trap, of comparing myself with others and thinking myself better. Let me tell you, don't go there. Don't think too much of yourselves. Don't think too little of yourselves. Have a balanced, realistic view. And part of that balanced, realistic view is the point that he makes next, that God has uniquely prepared each of us for a specific service. He's given each of us different gifts different abilities that impact the health of the body of Christ. God loves variety. He knows we need each other. And what Paul names right here is not a complete list of the spiritual gifts that God gives to men and women, but what it is is it's just enough to give all of us some examples for him to be able to say, listen, no matter what your gift is, it's valuable and the best thing you can do is perform it well and perform it gladly. Next, in 9 through 16, we get down to some more nitty-gritty because Paul begins to talk to us about how to love others genuinely. It's all part of being the living sacrifice. What did Jesus tell his disciples? They will know you are my disciples by the way that you love each other. It's the same thing is vitally true for us today. So, but this is the area where we can really easily slip off that altar. So let me ask you a few questions. You've had a really busy day and you need groceries in your house. The cupboard is empty. And you didn't get things together enough in advance to call and order your groceries online. So you've got to stop at the grocery store you go inside, it's busier than you want it to be. 
You've got one of those carts where the wheel is dragging all the way around the store. It goes right when you want it to go left. Your cart is full. You get to checkout and you think you have found the shortest line until you realize that it's not moving very quickly because the cashier is brand new. Remember everybody's short staffed and she's just been hired and you can see her hesitance, you can see that she's nervous and she's perspiring and all of the sudden it becomes apparent to her that that wonderful register tape that just pops right out of her computerized um, cash register is needing a change and she has no idea how to do this and so she has to call a manager, a supervisor to come over and help her. They don't come very quickly. How do you respond? Are you slipping off the altar? Or let's say now that the COVID restrictions are being lifted, you decide to go out to dinner and take the kids one night. <clears throat> you pick a place you know everybody will like. You don't eat very much that day because you're thinking, I'm going to wait and just have a good meal at dinner tonight. You get in the restaurant, they seat you, you get your menus, everybody gets a glass of water, and then the server comes over and says, you're gonna have to bear with us tonight because we're short-staffed, it's going to take longer than normal for someone to come over and get your order and then for your food to be prepared. And just as she walks away from the table, your kids are hungry and irritable and they implode. Are you crawling off the altar? These are the times that call on us to love genuinely and be patient with others. So Paul says, love genuinely, don't pretend this affection. And then immediately after that, he says, hate evil, but hold on to good. Now, why would that be the very next thought after loving genuinely? Because a believer who truly loves God and is truly expressing the love of God hates evil. Someone has said that the only safeguard against sin and evil is to be shocked by it. And why is that true? Because the alternative is compromise. And we, it is really easy to compromise in our culture today. It lulls us in and leads us towards sin. We know the drill here. We are bombarded with messages on television, on social media, in books, in the news, from our neighbors and topics that they're, that they're discussing. Compromise is everywhere around us. And it makes us think that we can listen or participate because we're strong enough. We're not going to give in to this. We're immune. But remember, Paul's words here are strong. They are fierce. He says, cling to good and abhor evil. And he says further along in the New Testament, be careful if you think you are standing strong, lest you fall. Let's go on with how we love. He talks about honoring each other, and he actually goes as far as to say, outdo each other with the way that you show respect and honor. Don't be lazy. There's a great progression in verse 12 as we are considering being living sacrifices. 
He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in struggles, and constant in prayer. Think about that for a minute. If you are rejoicing in hope, then you are keeping your mind focused on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you are patient in struggles, you are recognizing that you are, your hope is way beyond your circumstances. But then what you're doing is you are constantly staying in prayer and in communication with the Father. When we model that kind of life, when our hope rises above our trials and we can patiently endure them and we never cease praying, we are a living sacrifice. Paul goes on to say, serve others, practice hospitality, celebrate with those who are celebrating and weep with others who are sad and mourning. Spend time with all different kinds of people. In other words, don't be a snob. Take an interest in ordinary people. But how do we do all this? It sounds great in these verses. You know, sure, I can like everybody. I can rejoice when good things happen to other people. But think about this for a minute. Your friend just got to go on a really great vacation, and you haven't been away in months, maybe years. How do you feel about that? Maybe someone else's child got the award that yours deserved. How are you doing with genuine love? Maybe another guy got the promotion. Or a friend of yours lost 20 pounds, just like you need to lose 20 pounds. You weren't included when a particular group got together. Are you rejoicing in these things? The only way we rejoice in these moments is supernaturally because we are becoming more and more like Jesus and we are staying on the altar. Now, when we are living sacrifices and we have transformed minds, Paul assures us that we will know the will of God. And do you know what? Everything we just talked about, everything we just said about using our gifts gladly and well, and all the ways that we love genuinely, respect others, are all part of the will of God in each of our lives. In about 80 words, Paul has shown us how to love others in practical ways. And finally, he lands on this one, which is a toughie. He says, finally, do not repay evil with evil. In other words, do right even when you've been done wrong. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Do you know the grizzly bear who lives in the forest? He is the most powerful animal in the forest. Yet he has one other animal that he is not an enemy of. All the others are totally intimidated by him. They won't come anywhere near him. But there is one that the grizzly shares his food with. It's the skunk. And the reason that the grizzly doesn't return evil for evil to the skunk is because the skunk costs him too much. So he doesn't give the skunk any trouble, even though he doesn't really like the skunk very much, but because he knows the skunk can really cause him trouble. And the cost of the grizzly getting even is too high. 
If he gets sprayed, he's not a happy grizzly. It's the same for us. When we get caught up in thoughts of anger, vengeance, what happens first? We are the ones who suffer physical stress and a bitter spirit. And what God is saying is, just don't go there. Let me take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This example, this picture, is an ancient custom that was practiced where if someone had truly offended another and they were experiencing um, humility, sorrow, guilt, shame over what they had done, they would walk around in public with a pan of burning coals on their heads to represent the position that they were in that they had been shown how gracious another had been to them in light of what they had done. So what God is saying is, you let me control the circumstances around this. You do the right thing, and it may bring shame to the one who has hurt you, but you let me use those circumstances either to draw that one to me or in judgment one day to punish that evil behavior. It's not up to us. Do not return evil for evil. So now let's go back and end with a few questions. There are some things I'd like you to consider about chapter 12. First of all, are you ready to climb up on that altar to be the living sacrifice? Are you ready to give your mind over to transformation and to choose to avoid the things that otherwise would make you conform to the world? Are you owning the gifts God has given you and recognizing that they are for the health of the body of Christ? Are you willing to practically love others with a genuine heart with the help of the power of the Holy Spirit? And finally, is there someone who has wronged you, who has hurt you? And not being vengeful is a really tough spot that's where your heart wants to go but is there that person to whom you need to respond in kindness let's pray father we thank you for all of the truth in romans 12 and the ways that it challenges all of us lord i pray for um, each one of us who have studied this lesson that um, we will take these thoughts deep into our hearts that the Holy Spirit will continue to remind us and teach us from your word that we may truly be living sacrifices for you. And Father, we ask you today to renew our minds, to transform us into people who are more and more like our Lord Jesus. And we pray all of this in his mighty and powerful name. Amen.